0: New York City is dotted with coffee shops. They're pretty much on every block. Some streets might even have two or three. And each and every morning, people line up to get their java fix before heading off to work or school. Hi, I'm George Polarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and it's WFUV.org. Today, we're exploring a bit of New York's coffee scene. But don't worry, if you're a tea drinker, we have something for you, too. In fact, we're starting off with a place that offers both. It's a family-owned coffee and tea operation right here in New York City. I visited their flagship Greenwich Village location.
1: My name is Peter Longo, and I'm the owner of Puerto Rico Importing Company.
0: What's the history behind Puerto Rico Importing Company?
1: Puerto Rico Importing Company was founded in 1907. And at that time, this area was filled with Italian immigrants, and the store was open to supply them with all of the things that they were used to getting back in Italy. So we roasted coffee, uh, dried mushrooms, tea, olive oil, all the things that they were used to getting. And uh, when my family took it over in 1960, it was still pretty much the same because the area was still very, very Italian. But then over the years, as different customers came in you had the the beats here and nyu and people artists who were well traveled they'd come in and ask for different items and we get it in and now we have a repertoire of a number of different coffees from origin maybe 30 and then we make blends and whatnot and we also carry tea and loose tea and spices and a lot of the same items but you know the 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 customer base has kind of changed. You know, it's more Americanized. So we've, you know, bent to that. And when someone comes in and asks for something new, we get it in.
0: No doubt the aroma leads you to your shop here because you smell it from the street.
1: (laughs) It's true. It's true. In fact, you're going to love this. We've had customers who, you know, because... Our crowd is kind of a residential crowd, so every once in a while we'll have someone in a bathrobe come from next door, you know. And it's true; you can smell it on the street and
0: follow your nose. Yeah, no question exactly. about that. Where's the Puerto Rico importing company? Yeah, follow then, your nose. Follow
1: your nose, it's true. Yeah.
0: Tell me about the different varieties of coffee you have here.
1: Yeah, we have about 30 different coffees from different countries. And then we roast it to different shades, anywhere from an American roast, which is light, you know, a Vienna French, all the way to an espresso, which is very, very dark. And then we do a lot of blends. And over the years, we've accumulated a number of blends. God, There's got to be 80 of them. And some of them are named after restaurants or after customers or people who've worked here. Uh, There's a gal in the village named uh, Aggie who had a restaurant for a long time. And she had her own blend. And it was very popular. You know, she's a bit of a character. So we named one after her. It was the stuff she used in her restaurant. And then when she closed, I had to ask her if it was all right to sell it in the bean, you know, because it bears her name. So it's that kind of stuff.
0: What other kinds of names have come out of there?
1: Oh, let's see. There's the Bedford blend, which was named after a young woman that I dated when I was much younger. There's Peter's blend, which is mine. There's, oh, let's see. Oh, Copenhagen. This is the one. We used to have a blend called the Copenhagen blend. And I got a call from White's Coffee Company, whose son had taken it over and who is a lawyer. So he said, you can't use Copenhagen anymore. So, okay, so we named it Danish, and then in parentheses, formally Copenhagen, and he was furious. (laughs) So stuff like that.
0: That's great. What are among the countries that are represented in your copies?
1: Quite a few. Yeah, Papua New Guinea, Java, uh, Yemen, Yemen Mocha. Ethiopian Harar and Ethiopian Yergeshef, two different types of Ethiopian, Kenya, AA and AB, Jamaican Blue Mountain, Colombia, Costa Rica, Guatemalan, uh, Mexican, oh, some exotic ones, from the Galapagos. Then we have a lot of single-origin coffees. We have one in particular. It comes from Finca, Los Angeles, and El Salvador, and... That one we bring in directly. This woman whose family owned the farm, it's a small farm. During the war there, uh, the revolutionaries took over the farm and lived there uh, because she's in that part of El Salvador. So when the war was over, she went down there and basically rebuilt the farm and got it going again. And I happened to meet her, and I've been buying her crop ever since.
0: I understand that you sell coffee here that includes cat poop, is that right?
1: yes that's the you that's the civet cat coffee now yes uh, and here's how that happened the most popular one is uh an indonesian one and that's the one that they've been making a big fuss about the caged cats and all of this and that but the one that i was carrying and in fact i had to stop carrying it because of the pressure of you know had abuse. But anyway, long story short, the woman had uh, who bring, brings it in, this gal, Diane, uh, was married to a Filipino fellow, and the area of the Philippines that he comes from, they would collect the poop in the jungle, wash it, and then they would sell it. So, yes, and it's like 400 bucks a pound. And when customers ask for it, we roast two ounces to four ounces, custom, and then we package it and we send it to them. But recently we've linked our websites. And so when you order it, we tell you on the website that we're not carrying it, but we facilitate you getting it by going directly to Diane.
0: Now, the reason that there is cat poop in the coffee is the fact that the cats actually eat the coffee yes, beans, right? That,
1: right, they're eating the fruit. Right, exactly. The little red cherries, which is the fruit, when it's ripe, they eat it, uh, you know, and then they poop out the the digested bean, and now all the mucilage is gone, and it's just the uh, parchment covering the coffee bean. So uh, these folks take that and wash it and separate it from the poop and all this and that, and then uh, they dry it, and then they shuck the uh, parchment shell around it off and then you're left with the coffee beans and that's what we get.
0: What if anything do you think a person's tastes in coffee says about that person?
1: Right. You know, co- co- coffee is cultural and it's not only cultural in terms of your ethnicity, it's it's almost regional. For instance, you've seen the term a big city roast, you know, you see it on signs. What that means is Commercially as a roaster, for the, a big city market like New York, because there's a lot of people who have an ethnic background, they like their coffee toasted a little darker. If you were to go down to uh, South Carolina, they would be drinking their coffee in a light roast. And if you went into a restaurant, they would use an ounce and a half of coffee for ten cups, where up here a restaurant would use three ounces of coffee. 10 cups. So what it means is if a person comes in the store and they say, oh, I know nothing about coffee, what should I get? We would say to them, well, what are you drinking now? How do you drink it? And what that tells you is you know, a lot about them. Are they from the East Coast? Are they from the North and the East Coast? Do they have a Latin background if they get it dark? Or if they say, oh, well, I brewed it with a colador. I mean, that's obviously a Latin thing. So you can tell a lot about a person by what kind of coffee they drink, how strong they drink it, and how they add stuff to it.
0: Do coffee and tea drinkers, do you think, differ in personality in any way?
1: Absolutely. 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 I hate to say this, but... um, I was going to say that tea drinkers are more cerebral. I don't know how true that is, but they certainly are more given to the ritual of making the tea, and they do it the same way over and over. That's not to say that coffee drinkers don't, but, and they do because ritual is a big part of coffee and tea, but uh, tea drinkers are more particular.
0: What kinds of teas do you sell here?
1: We have about 150 types of loose tea. Uh, Most popular would be Earl Grey, which is uh, scented with bergamot oil, which is the blood orange uh, essence. And we make that ourselves. That's very popular. English breakfast, Irish breakfast, Darjeeling. We have a number of Darjeelings, and they go by their letter grades, like GFOP, which stands for Golden Flowery Orange Pico. And then there are first flushes of that, which are the first bloomings. That's popular. And then there's a second flush, which is big on flavor, but not too big on aroma. That's another popular one. So those would probably be the top five. And then you'd have orange spice, which is very popular. It's a black tea mixed with orange peel and, you know, rinds and and cinnamon and clove and all of that. Constant comment being the most famous. And... uh, Oolong. Oolong tea is very popular, and of course now green tea, and I think there's a big health move, you know, so people are interested in green tea because they think it's healthy.
0: What would you say the ratio is here in terms of your customers between coffee and tea drinkers? Yeah, I would drinkers.
1: say it's 70-30. Yeah. Tea is getting more popular, but there's another aspect to it, and that is a pound of tea will yield 200 cups. A pound of coffee is 60 cups, so a little goes a long way. So tea drinkles will buy a quarter pound or a half pound at most, and uh, it lasts a while. Whereas coffee, every week you need another pound.
0: And this is still very much a family business.
1: My son Peter is in the business now, and my second son Matthew is finishing up his degree, but he's in the business too, but not permanently because he's still in school. So yeah, they're, let's see, they're fourth generation.
0: Something to be celebrated in a city like New York.
1: Yes, it's true, it's true. And it's good for me because they're big strapping boys and I don't have to do some of those things that I used to have to do. They can do it.
0: Let me ask you this question because many years ago I was in Italy and I asked someone to mix cheeses and they said, absolutely not, we will not mix cheeses. Are there any coffee beans that you will not mix? Are there any blends that you say, "Uh uh-uh, not doing it?
1: You know, you're blending for a reason to achieve the best of those coffees that you're blending so it's like color if you put too many colors in a mix it kind of browns out so it's the same thing with coffee I can't think of two coffees that I wouldn't mix but I'll say this, like some of the heavier coffees like the Indonesian coffees they're heavy and they're spicy if you were to blend two of those together and roast them to a dark roast, it would be not too good. So I would avoid stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, that would probably be, you know, a good example of what I wouldn't blend together.
0: Peter, thanks so much for your oh, time.
1: My pleasure. You're welcome.
0: That was Peter Longo. He's the owner of the Puerto Rico Importing Company. They're online at PuertoRico.com. That's Porto spelled P O R T O. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Polarkey. Next, we're getting another jolt of caffeine with the CEO and founder of Coffeeed. It's a charity-minded coffee company based here in New York City. Frank Turtle Raphael is on the phone with us. Can I call you Turtle? Um, sure. I like Turtle. Sure. Okay. Where did you get the nickname Turtle?
2: Well, my first job out of Yale University, I got hired to work for the Giuliani administration under Commissioner Henry Stern. He was the Parks Commissioner at the time. And he had this sort of tension for giving people nicknames. My last name is Raphael, which is, uh, I guess, pretty obvious where a turtle would uh, sort of generate from there. And it sort of stuck for the last 20 years.
0: So, Coffeeed, what's the mission of Coffeeed?
2: Sure. Um, you know, in general, the overall mission, of course, is we're a food and beverage company. So, uh, the main thing we do on a day-to-day basis is make sure our customers get a, an amazing cup of coffee, an amazing beer, Amazing beverage and also food. Um, you know, we, we have a relationship with the Brooklyn Grange rooftop farm in Queens. So, a lot of our produce, uh, especially this time of year, most of our produce comes from this rooftop farm right here in Long Island City. So, for us, uh, the food and the beverage is sort of our key. But, sort of on top of that, a more overarching goal is we have this sort of concept that is a for profit company with a very strong social mission. At least, a very strong social mission, the way we view it. That sort of manifests as a charitable contribution. We give a percentage of our gross sales to a charitable partner per location. And we also do some sort of work, which we sort of fell into, um, you know, hiring people from certain underserved populations inside of our cafe.
0: Who are among your charitable partners? Uh, we have a bunch right now. So we have 10
2: locations. Each location has
0: a different charitable partner.
2: Um, you know, uh, we have our charitable partner in our Chelsea location, is New York Family. Uh, the New York Family, uh, you know, one of the Oldest and uh, you know most well-known foster care groups in New York City. They do amazing work. Uh, you know, started by a sister charity, uh, 100 plus years ago. We uh, we work with them in their fledged location they have in uh, Chelsea on 590 Avenue of the Americas. And for there, you know, we we basically are right in their headquarters. So at, outside there gives exposure to the mission, the incredible mission of the family and also provides a great product for people that work in the family and also for people that are just have to be walking by the family. So it's a win-win. That's, that's the family. The Long Island City location on the waterfront, we give a percent of our sales to uh, the Conservancy, the Hunters Point Parks Conservancy. It's a group similar to the Central Park Conservancy that does a lot of work keeping the parks maintained. So of ancillary services that the city of New York is not able to provide. I mean, horticulture, event planning, things of that nature. So we're very very proud to work with them. And then there are, uh, you know, there are a bunch of them.
0: How aware are your patrons when they come in for a cup of coffee that some of their money is going to charitable causes?
2: That's a very interesting question. Uh, you know, it, it, it's an evolving process right now. It's sort of organic. Um, some sites, they're super aware. You know, the New York Foundling site I just mentioned, uh, it's super aware. When you come in there, there's a lot of um, great artwork on the walls, really highlighting the mission of uh, the Foundling, our relations with the Foundling. Um outside, outside of that, um, some of our other locations, there's really, no, there's really no word of it. So we're trying to really strike the right balance. Uh, you know, we, we really don't want people to come in and feel like we're proselytizing them in any sort of charitable mission. But a lot of our customers, um, a good many of our customers, I should say, really feel uh, connected with our charitable partners. Um, you know, at the end of the day, all of our customers like all Americans, like all people in the world are charitable. So if they could sort of, um, you know, get a great product, and feel like they're connected with a great travel mission somewhere, that's sort of a win for them.
0: What inspired you in the first place to get involved in the coffee business?
2: Uh, well, the, the coffee business for me is, is a way to really connect very closely with, uh, with customers. I'm a relatively social person. I talk a lot, sometimes way too much. And for me, uh, when you're serving someone a cup of coffee, a beverage, to eat, is a really great close personal connection with someone that I really sort of crave. And I really like. On top of that, I'm a science guy by training. In college, I studied I studied science, uh, and coffee there's a ton of sort of scientific elements to it, from the growing of the coffee beans to the uh, to the roasting of the coffee beans, the preparation, and every single aspect of that process. There are a lot of variables in play, and there's a lot of sort of experiment, uh, experimenting that can take place that I, I get very attracted to, and it's very pleasurable every day to sort of feel like I'm back in a lab.
0: You mentioned the science behind it. Is there anything particularly unique about how you roast your coffee?
2: Uh, yeah. Well, the, the biggest thing that we do that's sort of uncommon in the industry is we really ultra-micro-batch our coffee. So we have a roaster that, that roasts about seven pounds at a time, which is super small,
1: okay. uh, and
2: we really don't want to grow from that. We, we crank that, that little roaster on our northern mobile location in Long Island Sea, so Queens, pretty much all day long. Uh, but for us, there's really no other way to do it. We love doing it that way. It's it's um, a way you really could tweak each individual bean. Even if you get even the same bag of beans quite often, you may want to roast different parts of the bag different ways. It's really that sort of specific, different times of the day, the moisture, the humidity, that type of thing. And you really, we really have the ability with this really amazing roaster to um, to, to fine tune it. And for us, it's a lot more time in in a lot of ways. Then sort of just throwing the whole 130-pound bag right in the roaster and roasting it up. But it's a little more connected to it. Uh, it's worth the extra time. And for us, the bean, you know, it, it comes with a profile that we like. Not, not always a profile that everyone likes. You, you, you can roast a bean many different ways, and it produces many different flavors. Uh, yeah. For us, we, we sort of cup the coffee as we're roasting it, see what profile we're going for, whether it's for an espresso, whether it's for a drip, a pour-over, a cold brew, iced coffee. And we try to roast it knowing uh, you know, where the bean is eventually going to be brewed.
0: How do you compete in a coffee city like New York where there's a Dunkin' Donuts or a Starbucks pretty much in every corner?
2: Yeah, New York City's great. New York City has a lot of great, amazing coffee shops all around. And we're really proud to be in this market. For me, you know, I, I really don't view it in a lot of ways as being competitive. You know, we we have a um sort of a product that is unique, um, because we do we do find some of the rarer coffees in the world. And we also have a mission to some extent that is unique. You know, we obviously didn't create the idea of social cost companies, but we're very proud to be in that market space. It's a great market space to be a part of. I think it's a growing market space, I think it's sort of a trend that a lot more companies from all different industries are joining forces and really realizing that a company could be very charitable and very profitable. And often the charitability part helps the profitability part, and most people think it's going to be the way. So from a competitive standpoint, I don't really view it as a competitive um, industry. Um, you know, a lot of our competitors that we would view that people say, you know, do you go to Starbucks and things like that, or Panera, which is probably a more similar analogy to us. and to more food-heavy than Starbucks. You know, I go to these places. You know, I'm actually very impressed with a lot of these places, and I see their operational uh, um, uh, benefits, the operational skills they have there. It's sort of institutional knowledge. And I go there, and I sit there, and just sort of learn and see and for me it's um you know i, I it's, it's they they've already learned a lot of the lessons that we're going through right now as a smaller company, and uh they mastered it
0: what would you say makes for a good cafe? I mean people love to sit hang out, some people love to hang out all day on their computers in a cafe
2: sure i mean it it really is a, a, a coffee shop in general a cafe uh much like a pub in ireland it it's it, 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 all very often the hub and the meeting place for a neighborhood for a community. So you want to have a place that people feel comfortable, that they feel connected, that they feel the ability to, to interact in a very nice way with the staff. Um, you know, with their barista. Uh, you know, a barista, after all, is a bartender. So you really want to have that connection. You know, aesthetically and from a physical layout. You know, there are a lot of different ways to do it. You know, our, our vibe is more, is very rustic. You know, we, since we have this association with the Brooklyn Grange uh, Urban Farms, we have a very farm, urban chic type feel to it, and it's very, um, in a lot of ways, bare bones. But it's a very warm place, you know, sort of a eclectic mix of furniture and things like that. But it's a place that sort of works. At least I think it does. And I'm, I always, you know, for me, going to work every day is not going to work. You know, it's just a pleasure walking through these places. And, you know, it's a gift to be able to work in a cafe, quite honestly.
0: Turtle, thanks exactly. so much.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for the call. I really appreciate it. Have a great day.
0: Frank Turtle Raphael is the CEO and founder of Coffeed. You can find them online at coffeeednyc.com. Finally, something specifically for tea drinkers. Our next guest travels around the world to learn, write, and educate people about tea. Kathy Y.L. Chan is a tea specialist in New York City and beyond. She's on the phone with me this morning. Kathy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me.
3: Thanks for having me here today.
0: How have you made tea into a livelihood?
3: Just lots of luck and a good deal of hard work and good timing as well.
0: So, what exactly do you do as a tea specialist?
3: I work with um, both individuals, um, companies, and brands on sourcing tea, developing like new concepts, flavors, and menus. And then when I work with individuals on helping them source um, and build tea collection, and I educate a lot too in terms of like teaching classes, like Tea One Hundred One, you know, for recreational and more for professional business development and people who travel abroad and want to understand other tea cultures and etiquettes before going there.
0: What is trending right now when it comes to tea?
3: Um, As you can probably guess, matcha. Matcha is the hot tea of the moment. And though it's been around forever, it's really taken off in the last year. Um, In New York alone, we have, I believe it's three or four stores that focus exclusively on matcha.
0: Yeah, what exactly is matcha?
3: Matcha is a Japanese green tea, So like regular tea is a brew, like you brew the tea in hot water and then you remove the tea leaves and you drink the hot water, right? But matcha is actually a suspension because the tea leaves are ground up into a fine powder and then mixed with water. So with matcha, you drink the entire tea leaves as opposed to just steeping it and then removing the leaf. So it's, you know, hot for a bunch of reasons. Um, It's also very uh, photogenic and you know, healthier. People consider it to be healthier than regular tea.
0: How much different does it taste than green tea?
3: The flavor is a lot more powerful because you're consuming the whole leaf. It brings out like lots of umami flavor, um, very grassy and vegetal, you know, and depending on what region your matcha comes from, it can be like sweeter or a little more stringent, but it's a very intense, very intense, frothy green tea.
0: You mentioned that you teach T tea one oh one. What's involved in those classes specifically?
3: People who just want to learn the basics of tea, you know, people understand that all tea in the world comes from the same plant. So whether you're drinking white tea, green tea, black tea, they all come from the exact same plant. And the only thing that makes a difference is the processing, like how it's dried, oxidized, withered or steamed and is, tea is amazing. Tea is just like wine. I know people always tend to compare tea with coffee, but it's a lot more similar to wine in how you approach it, taste it, and understand it.
0: How so? Explain a little bit more about that.
3: Just mainly the terroir tasting notes, the way you describe the flavors you get in tea, is more akin to wine and the way it evolves a lot over time. Some teas are aged. I don't know, have you heard of puerh tea before? No. Puerh, um, it's a very famous type of tea. It's one of the main categories. And all Pu'er is produced in Yunnan, in the south of China. And, you know, Pu'ers, they're the only type of teas that can be aged, and their value increases as they're age. So, you know, like wine, whereas, you know, you don't really age coffee.
0: Where in New you York know? City will you find the best tea?
3: Um, for Japanese teas, I love Iporo. Um, over in Midtown, they're inside a townhouse on the ground floor of Upstairs is a Japanese restaurant called Kajitsu, and then Ippuro is downstairs. And they're one of the oldest tea companies from Japan. They're based in Kyoto. And they do amazing, you know, matcha, sencha, hirokuro, all the classic Japanese teas.
0: I was in London recently, and of course, afternoon tea is a big thing there. Is that a big thing in New York at all?
3: It is, and it's getting bigger. So afternoon tea etiquette is also a fun thing that I teach. Um, There's so many little details to, you know, having tea correctly, from, you know, how you slice your scone to do you put the cream on first or the jam on first, and, of course, you know, how to eat your cucumber sandwich so that the cucumber doesn't slip out. There are a lot of details that go that are involved in afternoon tea.
0: Where do you suggest people go in New York City for afternoon tea? Uh,
3: Let's see. My three favorites would be Peninsula Hotel, the Mandarin Oriental, and St. Regis. Yeah, most of the afternoon tea spots are tied to hotels here.
0: Where in the world will you find the best tea? I know you travel a lot. Where do you like to have tea most?
3: In Asia, sort of, and especially in like China and Hong Kong and Taiwan, sort of like where most of the world's tea is grown. And Chengdu, specifically in China, has an enormous number of tea houses. So the way, you know how in the U.S. we'd go out for dinner and afterwards people would be like, Do you want to? Go to the bar and grab a drink or a nightcap or something. Uh-huh. So instead in Chengdu, instead of doing that, people would invite you to a tea house. And lots of tea houses have like memberships where the members like store their teas within the tea house, and it's just a completely different way of seeing and understanding tea that we don't get in the U.S. But hopefully one day,
0: Kathy, how did you get into tea in the first place?
3: Um, well, first of all, I was a travel writer, so I was always sent to. Um, Asia and Europe to cover really fun stories. And every time I traveled, I would extend my return for a week and go seek out, you know, tea houses. And then it turned from tea houses to tea shops to tea farms and then tea farmers. And I would always bring back tea for friends. And then, you know, they'd be like, bring me back some of this or bring me back some of that. And then after a while, which I I loved doing it, it got really expensive. So I was like, hey, you guys got to pay me for this tea. And in the meantime, I started writing more about tea. And then slowly it turned into a business. I was bringing back tea for people, for businesses, um, you know, connecting them with like where to get tea in Asia and, you know, how to market, how to sell. And then a few years later, it became a full time job.
0: We have tea and we have dessert, but you recently wrote about the marrying of those two things.
3: Yes. Tea and dessert, it's, it's a classic combination. Tea pairs well with so many things. Tea and dessert is just one. Tea and cigars is another one. Um, tea tea just makes everything better.
0: And you also found that there are actually chefs out there that are putting tea in dessert, right? An infusion of the two things.
3: Yeah. And again, like, matcha is very popular in desserts. Matcha cookies, matcha cakes, um, just because it has that very, like, bright green color. That's very... Looks good on Instagram, you know, it looks great in photos. And in um, lots of cocktails, too. Lapsang Sochang, is very smoky tea, it does well in bourbon. And people, I use it to smoke salmon at home.
0: Let me ask you, Kathy, the big question hot or cold?
3: I prefer hot, regardless of what the weather is inside or outside. Iced teas are also really nice, especially if you cold brew it. So, you know, you steep the tea leaves in cold water and just let it sit in the fridge overnight for a few hours and when you cold brew a tea you get all the sweetness without the bitterness
0: i guess there are health benefits to tea right we didn't talk much about that yet
3: Yeah, tea has well there's a specific amino acid you find in tea that you only get in certain types of mushrooms and it's you know how after you drink coffee you feel really good and then you crash mm-hmm. so tea you get to feel really good but without the crash
0: kathy thanks so much for your time thank you Kathy Y.L. Chan is a tea specialist in New York City and beyond. You can find her online at kathyylchan.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUVHD New York.
2: Listeners supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.